No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me this week on the program is Brenna Galvin. Brenna is an elder law attorney here in Minnesota and is also a certified death doula, which is obviously the focal point for the week, and I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to ask the best questions of Brenna. So I actually had so much fun talking to her that I, uh, once again, have a long interview that I'm going to be splitting up into two different episodes. So this one is posting uh, a little bit late this week, so my apologies for that. I'm actually traveling at the moment. I'm recording this from a hotel room, so please forgive me for the audio quality and the uh, delay in getting this episode up, but um, as anybody who's been traveling and working at the same time can tell you, you just have to make your schedule work with what you have, and uh, considering I'm a one-man show here, I uh, don't fear the repercussion of somebody from higher up saying, hey, get this out, but I want to be respectful of you as listeners, and I appreciate the fact that anybody listens to this ever, so I'm uh, very sorry for getting this out a little bit late, but hopefully the fact that uh, Brennan was such a fantastic guest and I've got another episode lined up to turn right around for next week uh, is a bit of a salve on that wound, so uh, thank you everybody for your listening and for your patience. Uh, Brenna was uh, so cool to talk to. Uh, had a lot of interesting insight before we even really get rolling into the notion of death. So there's a lot of preamble and kind of establishing, setting the table for who Brenna is and how that informs what she does. So that's what a lot of this week's episode is. And then uh, next week's will be a little bit more hands-on about being a death doula and what that actually is. But we kind of start to turn that corner towards the end of the episode. So I think you'll really enjoy it. But uh, again, if you have questions, comments, concerns, let me know. Send an email to yourdead2 at gmail.com or find me on Instagram or Twitter at yourdead2. Always open for questions, comments, feedback, uh, listener stories. I'd be happy to share them online. Uh, I know we're getting some international listeners as well, so there's certainly perspective that I don't have as an American. But uh, again, I can't thank everybody enough for listening. It just blows my mind that anybody would want to hear somebody like myself talk about something like this on a, a weekly basis, so thank you. Um, if you can, please leave a review and a rating wherever you're listening to the podcast, if it's the iTunes Store, Android Store, Google Play, whatever, uh, Spotify, you know, I want to make sure that I'm giving the best that I can, and I don't know how to do that without doing it in, uh, you know, not doing it in a vacuum. So, um, like I said, very cool interview this week. Hopefully you get as much out of it as I did, and uh, we'll have part two next week. Thanks so much. So, um, that's it. We're going. Okay. Say hello. Hello, everyone. Can I ask you to bring your mic a little bit closer to you just sure. so you can comfortably sit back like this? Because my posture okay. is bad enough that I know that I, like, I'm going to slouch forward like a jazz piano player. Perfect. Okay. So, with me, I have Brenna Galvin. I immediately got your husband's name wrong when he was on. <laughs> that's okay. I, I made the assumption. We're used to it. You must be used to it, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. I get many things here addressed to my wife and I as though I'm... I like her last name, though. I Actually, I thought very hard about taking hers just because mine is a source of constant mispronunciation. And right. hers is very just straightforward, like, see it as you say it, which... Did you think about that for when you named your child? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. And I've got... Um, 
I have two brothers. My older brother has two boys, so I know that the Toyson name will pass on, and it's yes. not going to be ending with me. If it did, I may actually have reservations, but no, it's totally fine. <laughs> like, right. There are other people to continue it also. Yeah. I'll just make something up and go with McGillicuddy. I don't know. So, <laughs> um, But I could ramble all day. If you'd be so kind, tell the people a bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I am an elder law attorney, and with that, I've recently also received training to be an end-of-life doula, and end-of-life, death, dying, uh, living with chronic care needs is a large part of what I do and talk about with my clients, and it also bleeds into my personal life as well, because I am very passionate about the work that I do with my clients. Um, so it's frequently a topic of conversation, which is how we uh, hit it off mm-hmm. at a dinner yes, we uh, did. a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah, it was a real easy conversation to just, you're a lot of fun to talk to. Oh, you just... thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it flies in the face of our Midwestern sensibility right, to say that. Right. I'm going to just turn your gain up a little bit. Just so we catch more right there. There we go. Perfect. Oh, yeah. It was a super fun dinner that, honestly, I remember at the end of the night, we were we all felt bad for a server because we were all just, like, hanging out, and she wanted to flip the table, and we thought, oh, right, we should probably move on. But right. Right. That's hard to do when you're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Elder law attorney is what it sounds like i mean it focuses on yes so it's kind of an umbrella or a catch-all term so most of my clients have been diagnosed with a chronic care need and we are doing everything from making sure their legal affairs are in order to the um, planning for how to fund care coordinate that care on their behalf and make sure that um their quality of life stays at its peak throughout the process, um, which is sometimes hard to do depending on what's going on with their health and their caregivers and their loved ones. But uh, frequently we're working with people from generation to generation. So I might see a client for the first time for their essential estate planning documents making sure that they have their health care directives, powers of attorney, wills, trusts in place. And then I might see them five years later because they've had a major life change or a health status change. And that focus is a little bit more on care and quality of life. Mm -hmm. Was that focus in legal land, was that... um, (laughs) Did you find yourself gravitating towards that naturally, or was that something that you had stum- not stumbled into, but found yourself inadvertently in that field, that right. specialization, and found that you took to it well? Could you tell me a bit about how that turned out? Sure, sure. So I knew that I wanted to do this work before I went to law school. So it was something that was intentional for me. But looking back, it's very easy to say, oh, there's all these things in my life that have led me to the place I'm at now. Yeah. Um, while it's happening, you don't <laughs> always see those connections. But I feel like the story really started when I met a young woman with autism when I was in high school and started mentoring her. And um, we became very good friends. And when she was navigating the school system and making sure that she could 
um, be mainstreamed in our school, which meant that she could participate in all the activities that we participated in without autism. She um, needed oftentimes an advocate, and her parents were that advocate a lot, but I had to step into that role on many occasions. And when she turned 18, we went through the process of figuring out is she going to be able to live independently and make decisions independently, or will she need supportive services throughout that process? So that experience at a very formative age kind of led me into learning more about psychology, disability rights, and um, planning and advocacy. And then that work (laughs) led me to law school. And my first job in law school was working at the Disability Law Center, and that was an organization here in Minnesota that's associated with our legal aid, serves people with low income, low assets that need legal representation. And the Disability Law Center, when I was there, I realized so many of my clients with disabilities are aging with chronic care needs, and they have fixed incomes, low assets, um, and really need to figure out how to access care through these systems that are often a huge bureaucracy that are very difficult to navigate and make sure that you have the highest quality throughout the process. So um, that led me into more senior rights issues. Elder law blends the two. So often we're planning for special needs children Mm. and planning for adults with disabilities as well. So That's heavy. And this all, so it sounds like it was very just intrinsic to who you are, kind of a natural outgrowth of things that you found to be of personal importance or values that you really held close. Definitely. I think that something that I feel to my core is that law is a helping profession. That's why I wanted to enter it. And I don't think that that's how it's perceived, maybe publicly. But um, I found it as an avenue to really make sure that people were able to have a teammate through these hard, sticky points in their lives so they didn't have to go through it all alone. Mm. Also, I think there's just some part of my family that working with intergenerational um, or sitting at a table with multiple generations was really common. So... I was just back in my, where my mom grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, and at the table we had a two-year-old and a 90-year-old. And that kind of everyone together at different points in their lives, sharing food, sharing their experiences, sharing laughter was very much my norm. And so I think that there was always this comfort level with sitting at the table with people who might not be at the same life stage as I'm at. Yeah, the um, the notion that you're not necessarily the protagonist in every story. Right. It's, I've laughed about my nephews going off to school and when, oh no, they're going to realize like there are other kids. It's the same thing's going to happen with my daughter that like first time she goes to daycare, it's, oh, oh, oh wait a minute, I was the most important one. Huh. You know, like that idea of exposure to 
other people are important. This is the multi-generation. So before we started recording, we briefly talked about um, being mortal, which I just got done reading recently. Um, that was one of the big takeaways that I had from the book was that the idea of multi-generational living situations, I had been previously exposed to the notion that we as an American culture are kind of odd in that we don't really do that, but it was really striking to see not just in the aspect of what it means to have that in your household and like take care of the people and have them be part of your community on a daily basis and not just shuttle them off to an old folks home, but that it was such a part of the uh, independence and um, purpose of life towards the end of life, that it was really something that... uh, that was not an unintended consequence, but that was an interesting extrapolation for it. So it's interesting for me to see how you're explaining how you've come to this point with these different things, knowing that you're specifically working with people that need advocacy. So it's this benevolent thing, this selfless act. I mean, yes, you're getting a paycheck, but it's you're 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 reaching to um, I want to say, like, lesser, but that's not right. I, I mean, the um, uh, overlooked, something like that. I, I'm, I'm struggling for the right word, and I'll right. probably just cut all my rambling No, <laughs> I think that something that's I believe deeply in is that often we can see a lot from a society and how it cares for those who are aging, those who are dying, those who are experiencing chronic care needs. And it's not always the good that we're seeing. And I think that um, I feel deeply right now that we're in a place in our kind of Western American culture where we've really taken out these what have been termed distasteful things in our life and we've put them away Mm -hmm. we've put them in institutions we've Mm -hmm. put them out of the community and it's really shown that we don't value those populations and it really shows that we feel like we can't learn from them or if we can we're scared of what we'll find out Mm -hmm. we're scared or fearful of what we might discover if we bring them in and I think that that shows in how we we care for people who are aging and we find uh, nursing homes and there's been movements kind of to get people back from nursing homes or institutionalization back into the community. Um, and there is a great chapter in Being Mortal that kind of covers that topic of how the senior care landscape was turned on its head with the development of the assisted living model because Mm -hmm. we wanted to see how it could be changed if we didn't have to move out of our homes and transition in a place that was sterile, was not personal, was um, cold, and didn't express any part of how we live. Inhumane in that it lacked humanity, not that it was cruel, but just that it was an abandonment. Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't, I work with a ton of wonderful care providers and and care institutions, but I think that overall, when we see this trend, we see our own fears of 
end of life and dying and of the different have really cut us off to the possibilities of the fact that as we get older, as we go through this life, we really can um, learn from those who are different from us. But to do that, you have to have exposure, right? Mm-hmm. Do you find that people's aversion to talking about death is a real hindrance? Or is it by the time they've come to you for guidance in a number of these different subjects, you know, planning and establishing long-term plans, are people a little more comfortable dealing with abstract? Or is the fact that there is in any way not undesirable, and the word I was looking for before was marginalized, that sort of was. But the idea that um, you seem to be somebody who's more comfortable with the notion of death and dying Mm -hmm. and facing that a bit more head on, at least it seems we haven't really dove into the subject at this point. But I know that there are people who just absolutely shut down, cannot talk about it. Have you dealt with people all along that spectrum? Or how does that? Definitely. I think that um, in my work day to day, I see people at different comfort levels in it. Now, you're right, they have to have some comfort or at least their fear of what might happen if they don't plan is greater than their fear of talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it still might not be comfortable for them. But for some reason or another, they've made it to my office, which is the first hurdle. And a lot of people don't even make it that far, right? Um, But I would say that you see totally different levels of comfort with how people are willing to open up. And There's a ton of different ways that I employ to kind of broach topics, right, that um, I tell people to think about with their conversations with their families, with their conversations with me. We can use family stories, which is a huge part of this because um, I haven't had one client yet who has been immortal, right? (laughs) So... (laughs) So Man, I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it hasn't happened, be but a real um, weird day. yeah. So as a result, it's we all know it's inevitable. But that being said, we don't have the same comfort in discussing what that would what that would look like for us. So I ask people if they've what their life experiences are. I try to get to know. If there's been something that has been frightening for them to go through with a loved one. And that's often what drives people is that they had a loved one with a diagnosis or they had someone pass away that was close to them. And they felt like the process was harder in some way than it should have been. Hmm. Above and beyond just the emotional and psychological toll that death takes on us when we lose a loved one, but Mm -hmm. um, it may have cost more money because they had not planned, or it may have um, been caught up in a legal system that's taken a longer process. And so those things have might start a conversation. Mm. Um, Same with types of care that they want or don't want. They may have seen a loved one kept alive in a way that they wouldn't want to live. Yeah, and that was one of the bigger takeaways from that book for me mm-hmm. was that it was really 
reinforcing of the notion of I don't think I want to go strapped to a bunch of machines in a hospital. Like I'd like right. to have a little more of the uh, independence and the ability to be with family towards the end. But right. that being said, you know, best laid plans of mice and men, you don't yes. really get a fair shake. Right, right. There's so, only so much you can do in advance. But we also use things like popular culture. There might be a book or a news article or a celebrity who's elected hospice care. And that it can be an icebreaker for people to start a conversation and start talking about their own values and wishes. Could we take it like five steps back? Because I want to mm-hmm. ask about the the mentoring that you did as a young person. Yeah. Was this uh, this young woman, was she the same age as you or was she younger? She was a couple years younger than I am. Was this like a sanctioned program by your school or something? Or what did you just decide to take somebody under your wing like a family friend? Or what can you tell me about that? Sure. So um, I like to say that Sammy Joe chose me. Uh-huh. And um, what I mean by that is that uh, I... It was not something that was planned or intended. I was part of a peer group in high school that was supposed to be a resource for people. It was called Peer Listeners, and it was a group that was um, supposed to allow some supports and an open environment for people to share and be comfortable. Hmm. And we received very... um, you know, some training, but I would say now very minimal training. Right. But with that, I had an advisor tell me, you know, this woman or this young girl is coming up from middle school. She had a really tough time. If you'll watch out for her, say hello, you know, that'd be great. She'd love that. And so on the first day of school, she walked by me in the hallway and I grew up in a very small town, very small school. You know, everyone by name from middle school to through high school. And it is intense. Um, So she walked in and I said, hi, Sammy, and kept walking down. And every day thereafter, she was at the front door of the school meeting me or at my locker. And uh, that sparked our friendship. And we still talk and text every week yeah that is really cool yeah and i feel like the not cynical person but the the knee-jerk kind of reactionary person in me wants to think wow that's really amazing that a teenager would be so altruistic i mean i've had other people on this podcast talking about teenagers and they've said quite the opposite they're pretty awesome and they can be really good people we just get a you know a bad read on them through our own experiences and then looking at pop culture lenses through this you know that it's it is 100% in line with who I know you to be as a person that you would have done that but it's just so interesting for me to hear like what were the formulaic or formula formative moments of like this is where that kind of started happening with you of like here's a here's the spark of advocacy for you for taking care of people that need help and this is something that goes through that's just really cool. Right. I I think that you're right. There is something in me that there's that common thread throughout. But um, I don't like to say that it's a one-sided relationship because no. Sam has taught me so much about um, what it means to be a friend, what it means to... Uh, to experience this world in different ways that I haven't. Um and I think that I've learned so much from her, and it has been de- been definitely an inspiration to think about how I want to work and what I want to do in my work. 
but um I I think that I had no idea <laughs> when I said hello that this would be a lifetime yeah, a uh, connection yes right definitely and okay. I think that that's uh I see that with other mentors that I've had throughout my life um the people I met in my professors in law school that uh, her her name's Kimberly Dayton and her son had autism and she was a national expert in elder law and so there was that two worlds colliding mm-hmm. and that impact was like oh wow yes you you can do both these things and these things work together and um, I had her in a topic that was not elder law originally and was able to figure out ways to specialize throughout that program. But um, it's incredible out of all the schools that you could go to, I ended up at a place that had one of these leading experts. And when she went on sabbatical, uh, a woman named Chris Mazur was the professor in her stead. And Chris Mazur is now my partner. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So all of these things have kind of collided and it does when you look at things like that we all have times in our lives that there's these threads or connections and those are the things that make you I would say look upward and say wow is there something bigger than myself at play or what is within myself that has um, enabled these connections to happen Mm -hmm. looking at it from strictly a event history perspective it's very cool to see how clear the thread can become of like okay if we paint a narrative from the start to here now like that's very clear like these train cars all couple together and like wow that seems a little on the nose i guess this is pretty (laughs) pretty accurate to what i should be doing but to kind of diverge down that path then did you have much of a like spiritual religious upbringing at all or was that something that was just kind of not fostered or how what can you tell me about that it was very interesting so my dad grew up in a large irish catholic family but uh didn't never went to church still doesn't um (laughs) and my mom grew up in a family that was um i would say they call it a Christian church now, Southern Baptist, um, very, very religious upbringing, also doesn't go to church and didn't when we were young. <laughs> and so we grew up, my sister and I grew up in a house that Sundays weren't a church service or Saturdays weren't a church service. It was not poo-pooed, but it was also not uh no denomination was pushed at us in any way. Interesting. And so what was fascinating is I definitely had an age where I desired that. I desired some sort of connection, um, spiritual connection. I wanted something, as I think we all do, larger than ourselves. And that probably started taking place around end of elementary school, early middle school, and I started going to church with friends Sure, and uh, ended up being baptized and confirmed in the Methodist faith when I was in middle school. 
Interesting. And Not the first time I've heard that about young people finding yeah, Methodism, too. Yes. And so it's a very open, it was a very open, yeah. I, I would imagine it still is, but I... I'm not involved in any faith community currently, but... Yeah, that's going to be my next question, is uh, yeah. has this persisted, but right. you got kind of enough of it at that time where you got some ideas and kind of like, <laughs> interesting, All right, I'm going to well, take some of this. Yeah, I think that my my mom jokes that it was my god fad, you know, it was uh, my uh, Christianity mm-hmm. path down that way. I'd say that that's still um, very much part of my belief system currently. But in a more broad or open view, I think that as I've gotten older and become more familiar with different faith communities and different religions, I've looked at them all and said, oh, gosh, I like a lot of parts of these, you know, and I'm curious about them. And I don't think that I know that wars don't say the same thing, but I don't think that we have to um, say nothing but this. I really like the idea of exploring parts of all. And really, um, as I've gotten older, I've definitely always fallen back on this deep belief in the goodness in people. And I think that um, people crave ways to serve and they crave ways for community and the church is a wonderful way to find service it's a wonderful way of to find um, an external community where you don't have to do a lot of work to build that internally or in smaller structures Mm -hmm. yeah if you join into a thing it's a lot easier thing to gain some momentum than just i'm going to start my own community activism outreach and we're starting from scratch right right um so i think that there's a lot of people who have fallen in um or stayed in faith communities where they've said you know this is a huge part of my culture it's a huge part of my friendship circle it's a huge part of how i interpret the world and um, how I give back in ways, and so it's a natural fit. And I, I definitely still um, would say that I'm within the f- Christian faith tradition, but I think that that, and I'm not, I guess, afraid to to say that in the. <laughs> um, a lot of my friends are what I would say lefty progressives that um, are wonderful and very open to many things. But I think that now we're at a place where um, to acknowledge any sort of faith based feelings is questioned a little bit more. And certainly if it's in part that of an group. institution, too. Yes. That if it's right. like hierarchical or. Yes. It's been interesting for me to talk with people in this capacity mm-hmm. um, who are really religious and yeah. very organization-based, mm-hmm. like whatever brand or, you know, yes. sect it is. But I can 100% see what you're talking about having well, shared our own meals together yes. of what it can be to have just this really amazing kind of free-flowing conversation and then something comes up like that where it's like, well, yeah, but then the word of God and you just kind of all kind of, what, um, wait, wait, what were we talking about? 
Yeah, right. It can just kind of feel like Some fear. Yes. My husband, Kevin, and I recently went uh, to a live podcast of The Liturgist, which is uh, a great podcast that is really explores deconstruction of faith and then rebuilding or reconstruction <laughs> construction yeah deconstruction and reconstruction yes D and re yes of of faith and these concepts that we um have held true or dear and i think that they do a great job at it and it's something that i've really found comfort in t- listening to and hearing and knowing oh there's other people that are like me and i've said you know, I really appreciate these things, but I don't know if I believe um, the Bible as a um, as the Word of God, unadulterated. Yes, that there that there may have been some uh, kings who took liberties with, you know. Hmm. I think they should mention the name Peter more here because I, as a Peter, like history's written by the winners that there right. has been adulteration by people putting their yes earthly desires into right yeah and I don't think that that doesn't mean we can't learn from it right can we learn from lots of uh, stories and uh, words and modalities I think so I th- I think you still can find value but it's also been used as a way to hurt people yeah. and I think that that's what makes a lot of people rear up and say oh, I've experienced trauma or I've experienced um, a hurt within this one faith community, and so I'd like to throw it all out. And I like to explore, instead of throwing it out, what parts can we internalize and what parts can we adopt and what parts can we really find to be true for us and our communities. Um, Have you run into idiosyncrasies of faith really impacting your ability to proceed as you would normally intend to in your professional life that like people's planning and um and I guess speaking more to the death duel side which I'd like to get into as well um that it's pretty easy to paint Minnesota in particular with a broad brush of like it's a bunch of Lutherans and Catholics and just you know that's all pretty cut and dry but there's a lot of uh unique religious communities around here some very cool temples around here in close to my home actually like um there is a particular religious organization right down the street who have kind of a reputation that i'm very cautiously wanting to reach out to them that we can talk about after the fact right but um are you are you running into that that issue at all or is are you are you more of a i don't find it um hard for me to work with my clients and meet them where they are I think that that's to me the best you can do is meet someone where they're at and hold space for them and allow them to explore these ideas on their own I think that the role of an end-of-life doula is really to hold space and to really be there for people in the way that they need you or want you to be there And that's not a prescriptive lens. It's not, if you believe this, it will make this process easier for you. Mm. Or if you approach it in this way, this process is going to be better. Um, I don't think that 
that is helpful for someone who's trying to navigate that part of it is the journey. It's not actually the destination, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I don't have a hard time, but I can imagine if somebody held really um, strong convictions and maybe didn't have appropriate training, Mm. uh, that could be difficult for them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So how did you end up on the death doula path then? Was this a natural outgrowth from what you were doing or did you have a personal experience and think I can do good in this realm or what, what in the world brought you to this in the first place? So I think one thing that I saw with my elder law work is that I had worked really closely and intimately with people for years in their planning and to revise that plan and to be updated on changes in their life and health. And then often what was happening was the end was near, death was imminent, and I'd get a call from their loved ones or them, and they're the call was made out of fear, of course, and Uh it was, Brenna, it's happening, and I just don't know what to do. What do we need to do right now? And I felt like there was this gap in the care that I was able to give to my clients and that we've, well, you've done your legal documents, right? So your, your legal affairs are in order. And I've talked with your financial planner, your financial advisor, and your financial affairs are in order. And I guess that's all I can confirm, right? <laughs> yeah, and so there was this like... whole um, this whole host of in-between where pe- what they were seeking was really um, some reassurance that they had done everything that they needed to do. You know, all of their earthly business affairs were in order, Right. But so much of what they were needing was how do they emotionally prepare for what's happening and how do they um, come to terms with that and how do their loved ones deal with that and process what's going on in a time that our brains aren't functioning well. Because when we're in stress and trauma, our brains are reacting. They're not... um, our prefrontal cortex is not operating at executive level of functioning, right? Mm-hmm. We're in kind of the reptilian brain, which is very reactive and darty. And um, that's just our stress response. And so I felt like one thing that end-of-life doulas did for families was offer advocacy and offer companionship and offer all of the in between cares for the client and their loved ones uh, to be sure that all these best laid plans that they had done could be carried out to allow them to explore their life meaning and to help them connect these threads in their own lives, right? To find what impact they were leaving on the world or if they have unfinished business, you know, per se that they want to address or, or contemplate that you give them a space that they feel comfortable to do that and to really be a resource for those loved ones who are just reacting to the what's happening now. Oh gosh, this machine's buzzing. What do we, what does that mean? What do we need to do? Um, He looks uncomfortable. Is he uncomfortable? 
do you think he's hurting? Maybe we should get the nurse and get some meds just to kind of calm that buzz that's normal. Like, I'm doing something. I should fix this somehow. This should should be something that we do. Like, yeah, that was, again, another big takeaway from being mortal, just the idea of everything's a fixable problem in the medical world until it comes to, oh, there's this one thing that we don't even talk about as a culture, and um, we're not really going to talk about it, so here's some pain pills and just go away. Yes, and and you're right. Doctors have not been well trained in that um, historically, at least in our culture. And it's definitely something that because we're not intimately involved with and don't witness personally too mm-hmm. often, we are um, or we're told to shy away from. Um, oh, they've left or they've gone into this facility, and you know. They wouldn't want you to see them like this. It's so undignified. Right. It's just so, right. oh, this is embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I've spent a lot of time with my clients in hospice or in uh, in home hospice and hospice care facilities and sat with them for hours at the end of their lives. And so um, that is always a real gift and a real um something that's very sacred. I think that one thing we don't talk about is that death and dying is really a, a is sacred. It's part of how we live. And so um, I know it's the circle of life mode, right? We are born in this world and we will all die in this world. And so how we um, die is part of our story of how we have lived. And it will carry on to everyone that you've touched around you. And that story becomes part of their memories of you and their narrative. And so I think that um, end-of-life doulas offer this training and this, um, this knowledge of more information than I would say the normal population has on what happens physically to our bodies when we die, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what I mean, are the signs. most, yeah, that's the most uh, offensive to people, the idea that this physical right. vessel breaks down. It's the most degrading yes. to people. Like right. the, the, the where we go thing, people don't even want to talk about that, but this is what they want to avoid is the meat suit just yes. going nuts. Right. I would say most of my clients want for themselves to go to sleep one night and then uh, peacefully after having told everyone that they loved them and then not wake up the next day, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know if there's any, if it's positive or negative, it's just the way it is. It's just not how we die often. Um, And our bodies know how to die. Our bodies are... That is a wild statement. It's true. The medicine and the science supports that. I mean, our bodies know how to shut down at end of life and how to do it. Um, Now, not everyone, right, has a what we call a natural death and not everybody has um, dies in the same way. But there are signs of dying that we all have. And those are signs and symptoms we can see when you're trained to know what to look for. Yeah, my uh, wife's grandmother passed away this year, and it was amazing to see uh, what it was like 
for her as opposed to what had gone on with her grandfather who had had a very long protracted uh, passing due to Alzheimer's that he just, it was, I mean, he was gone long before he was gone. But for her grandmother, it was almost textbook with what the um, hospice care people had given us with the pamphlet of like, here's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Your feet may become cold. Like talking about all of the physical aspects of it it was amazing to see oh yeah they they've got all the details nailed down and she's right. going through them in a very and i say this out of love and respect honey i'm sorry to be talking about this on air yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but it was interesting for me and fascinating to see all of this happening and being as close to the orbit of it all around the star of what was happening and to not be anguished over it and to be able to be very observant about what was happening right and it mm -hmm. makes me think about the very nature and title of your role as a death doula because the only thing that i could think to even compare it to would be to talk about the birth of a child which so far i've been present for one right <laughs> but right. it's a heavy profound thing that even as a i was in a very world mindset at the time and medicated at the time and you know it was still very I was not a very spiritual person at that point in my life and yet it still felt very profound of like right. the the number of people in this room just went up by one you know yeah. and that it was not this this idea of we don't know what's happening it was more so like hey can somebody just be the continual through line here of like walking us through this process because if nurses just come in and go we're not going right. to know what's happening and if doctors are just stopping and checking a chart and going like do we just keep pushing and just right. you know so having a doula having somebody there to be the advocate to guide you through the process it's i would think on the flip side it's this and uh, you know maybe i'm stating the obvious here but it it's that's the point of the name of the podcast that no matter what you do yeah. happens to everybody we can right. try to run from it but it happens to everybody and it's natural and to get back to the point of our bodies dying like my dad's mom was in the end of her life and very comfortable and wanted to just go and she had asked the pastor at one point like why am i not dying like right i i know what i'm wanting here my i'm telling my body to shut down is there what can you tell me about our bodies knowing how to die? like um, sure. from, not just from the standpoint of like resources like mm -hmm. blood not going to think like well how does our right what right what happens so there's um and i i do have to say i can tell you this from my training and my experience but i'm not a doctor i'm not a biologist or a scientist i'm trained to know these signs and be able to talk with people about what we're seeing and how, but and you've there's murdered some... several people, right? Yes, right. Okay. Cleaned up after it. Too. Okay. No. <laughs> so you know you've seen the light go out of yes, somebody's eyes. Right, okay. right, good. exactly. Good, good. Hands on experience. So um I think that one of the things that we see is that um people do tend to lose appetite, right? So there's a natural loss of appetite and there's really um, the mechanisms that you use to drink and eat are um, shutting down, right? And there is all of our blood flow really goes towards keeping our essential organs functioning for that time. But that's why there's people feel cold in their feet and hands and because the circulation 
is not going to all of their extremities. It's really going towards their essential. I experienced that very frequently in high school because I'd eat a big lunch and then go to class. After right, that, and I was right. Freezing, all of my blood is working on right. digesting lunch. The warm is so yes. cold. Right. So okay. there's loss of appetite. There's change in blood flow and circulation. There is um, mentally there are things that are happening. So it's very common for people to have um, some visual hallucinations at end of life. Um, now let's talk about that <laughs> because yeah. as I've gotten more comfortable with all of this mm-hmm. um, and as I've learned that it's not let me be very careful in my word choice here. I've talked about this before as well. That mental health and stigma over hallucinations is a very tricky thing to navigate properly. But I know that when I've been at my worst stressed that I don't get migraine headaches, but I do get visual distortions around the peripheral of my vision. Yeah. And... I've read a lot of um, armchair psychiatrist (laughs) bullshit that I'm just telling myself I like that a lot of what people would attribute to religious, not religious, but like visions of things or voices that, that the mind just like kind of, for lack of a better term, just kind of farts out these, these inputs of like you think that there's a shadow over there because your mind's just randomly firing off a visual component right. and you're interpreting a pattern where there is none. So on one hand, there's a point to this, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> on one hand, I can see how potential dysfunction in the mind as it shuts down and what is neurotypical process would begin to go, quote unquote, askew mm-hmm. as the process shuts down. I think... On one hand, that could just be that material mm-hmm. aspect. But on the complete flip side of that is, is the line blurring between living and beyond. Like what I've talked about with uh, some friends about some real woo-woo, you know, out there rainbow children stuff is that kids are just closer to having not existed. And that's why they may be more open to this stuff. Do you think that there's anything, first of all, to any of that science bullshit that I'm talking about? But then second, to the notion of people coming to visit? Yeah. Or have you had experiences with that? Definitely. So I think that the um, the part of me that works and operates in all these modalities, right, as just kind of my human experience, my spirituality, and then my professional expertise in this um, says, does it really matter where that line is That's for us? True. Because um when it comes down to it a lot of people share stories that are very moving that are goosebump inducing right for us that that explain oh my loved one sister died three weeks ago and now she said you know my sister's on the train and she's asking me to come on the train right and it's her favorite sister and the train could be symbolic for her leaving and leaving this world. Right. And there, if you hear one story like that, you've heard 
thousands. And I tell you that it's very common for people to talk about death. And this is why I think death is really sacred in that um, you hear from clients and you experience this where people share what they're seeing and they might not be very conscious and then they might wake up and say, oh, I just saw Joe and oh, Joe wants me to come come with him. I'm going to go see him. And so, you know, you can talk with them and say, okay, let's get your bags, you know, and really offer um, both validation and also love and kindness and um, space for them. But when you see someone who's in and out of consciousness, who's not really communicating or participating with their loved ones or maybe visitors that are coming and then they come to and share these sorts of words about what they've seen it's very powerful and it does make you question okay part of this makes sense because we have explanations for how our brain functions and why this might be happening right but do we truly know And the answer is, no, there's still so much about the Mm -hmm. brain and how it works that we don't understand fully why this happens. The black box. From a purely neuroscience standpoint. But it's happening. And you can ask many people about that and they'll they'll agree. And so... um, does that mean that perhaps there's another side and that as we get towards the end of our um, our life, do we get closer to something else or a great beyond or whatever you might believe? Um, does our energy start going other places outside of our physical body into uh, the world around us? Do we start becoming what we might be is there an afterlife you know and that question is endlessly fascinating and it's also uh really really truly beautiful in that people can believe all different things and and no one's right or wrong I don't think but I have had personal experience where people have um Some people don't have control, right, of when they're going to die. But you do also hear stories about people who wait or people who will it to happen or people who say, you know, I'm going to hang on. And they don't say it, but they're they're hanging on for this moment or thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in our office, we always see an uptick in estate administrations after the holidays because so many people are hanging on to have one last Christmas or one last Thanksgiving or have everyone come together. And people do have a lot of will, and that plays a role into how long they're around. Now, I say that and acknowledge there are people who, of course, have cancer and want to stay around for their families and just can't, right? There's physical things that interrupt that, but... Um, it definitely plays a role in how people die. These, um, these ideas they have or these concerns they have, those fears or those deep-seated beliefs can really 
play a big role in their dying process. And that's more psychological, but has an impact on our bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, one story, and I've, I've shared this with you before maybe, but, um, with the kids and being close to the other side, Mm -hmm. um, my sister's grandmother-in-law, right? So my sister also works in end of life. She's a head of skilled nursing at a nursing home. So she works in this arena as well. And she was the caregiver for her husband's grandmother often. So when she was at end of life, my sister would come over and do the baths for her and make sure that she was comfortable and check in with her. And so my sister's children, my nephews, were around her quite often, This, this their great-grandmother, right? And she was approaching end of life, and everyone was aware. And one night, my nephew wakes up and walks into my sister's room and is crying and says, Mom, I just saw Grandma. I just saw great-grandma. And she told me she loved me, and Aaron said, you know, that's, why are you crying? Well, I don't think I'm going to see her again. And within five minutes, she gets a call from her mother-in-law letting her know that uh, her, this woman has passed away. And the question is, was there communication, right? Is there an empath in kids? Is there this, uh, because we are more open as children to what ifs, we don't have such concrete, um, sequential, uh, knowledge. We don't have all these doubts and jadedness, I guess. Yeah, Are they cynical. more open yeah. to these experiences? Um, did that really happen or was it just that he had known and he had been preoccupied by watching this woman die, you know, over a period of time? and felt close to her and dreamed of her, right? Is that purely the brain or is that something else causing that, that dream to happen? 